It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 182 for February 28th, 2010. Recorded February 26th, 2010. Backup is important. I mention that enough that you're probably sick of hearing about it, but it is really important. Often I talk about Carbonite, an online backup service that makes the process so easy that nobody can honestly say it's too difficult to understand. But as much as I like Carbonite, it's not my only backup. I also use Acronis True Image. I've told you about it before, too, and I think you'd be wise to use it. Since the last time I talked about this topic, which actually was just last month, I've added yet another layer of protection. My computer is used for testing and research, for website development, for time billing, and for some educational projects. It also contains tens of thousands of digital photographs I've taken over the years and thousands of music tracks. Losing the music would be annoying, but survivable. I can always recreate the tracks from the original CDs. Losing the digital photographs would be a lot worse. All of our family photographs from about 1998 on exist only in digital format. There are no negatives. In most cases, there are no prints. So losing the digital images would be far more than just annoying. One step even beyond that would be websites developed for clients time billing files, and tax records. To mitigate the dangers, I store most website development files on the website, so recovery wouldn't be too difficult in the event of a catastrophic failure, but I would still have to restore the files from dozens of websites. Time billing and tax records? (laughs) That would be worse still. A little paranoia is a healthy thing when it comes to backup, so my current backup strategy consists of several steps. Carbonite backs up most of my data files, and it is updated as close to real-time as possible. Acronis TrueImage backs up the system files and the most critical data files. It is updated just weekly. Websites are backed up on both of these, and also in a private directory on the website. Websites and most of the other really critical files are backed up on a hot backup drive, a USB device that's sitting beside my primary computer. This drive can be attached to my notebook computer at any time and would allow business to continue in the event of a major system failure. And what I've just added, most of the critical files are now also backed up to a local drive that's inside the primary computer. Wait a minute, I already hear you saying it. You're telling me that I have said in the past any backup device that is in the same physical location as the device it's being used to backup cannot be considered to be a workable backup device. Guilty. I've said that. That's because a fire or a thief that destroys or steals the primary system will probably also get the backup system. That's why an off-site online backup is important, and it's why an off-site disk-based backup is important. The on-site backups have a different reason for existing. Consider what can go wrong, anything and everything. If I accidentally delete or damage a file, I can probably restore it from the internal backup or the external hot backup. 
If not, and it has been changed recently, I can use carbonite. If it hasn't changed within the past week, I can get it from carbonite or from a Cronus. In the event of a fire or other major problem, I can restore the files from the Acronis backup or the Carbonite backup. Either one would work. Acronis would be faster if I needed to recover the entire disk drive. Carbonite would be a lot faster if I needed to recover just a few files. To lose a truly critical file that I've created for a client, the following things would all need to occur. Number one, the primary computer system located in Worthington would need to be damaged or destroyed. If that happens, both my internal backup and my external hot backup will also probably be unavailable. Second, the web server in Orem, Utah needs to be damaged or destroyed. Third, the Carbonite server located in Boston needs to be damaged or destroyed. And fourth, the external off-site backup located in Hilliard, Ohio must be damaged or destroyed. This is simply the most serious case I can imagine. Simultaneous loss of facilities in Worthington, Boston, Orem, and Hilliard. If that happens, something tells me that data retention is going to be about number 257 on my list of critical concerns. You can't protect against everything, but you can take reasonable precautions without needing to spend a lot of money. How much? Well, think about how much your data is worth. And then think about this. For 50 to $100, you can add an additional disk drive. For about 100 to $150, you can add an external USB hard drive. For $50 per year, you can add Carbonite backup. And for about $50, you can add a Cronus TrueImage Home. You will need another 50 to $100 to buy an external hard drive that you can store at your office or in a safe deposit box at your bank. You don't need to add all of these options to your computer, but adding just one or two will make recovery easier. I've just tuned up iTunes. From the name of it, you might think that a program called TuneUp would make your computer run better. It doesn't. But it does make iTunes look a lot better and maybe work a lot better. A lot of my tracks in iTunes are from CDs or records that I own. As a result, they didn't have cover art, and sometimes the track information and other metadata were wrong. I could use iTunes to obtain the cover art and manually edit the track names and other metadata, but there's a much better way. It's called TuneUp. TuneUp works with iTunes. When you drag selections to the cleanup panel, and TuneUp recommends that you do this with no more than about 500 at a time, but I found it'll take a lot more probably double that, maybe even more, if you don't mind the occasional application crash. In addition to having tracks with bad capitalization, I noticed that CoverFlow had very few covers in it. So I didn't use CoverFlow, but I kind of wanted to. So I downloaded TuneUp to give it a try and found that it's very easy to drag selections to TuneUp because it sits at the right side of iTunes. You can set it to start automatically when iTunes starts. I had to turn that off, though, because I'm using Windows 7 on a 64-bit system. One or the other is a bit of a problem. TuneUp isn't yet fully certified for Windows 7, but I found that it works okay most of the time. I just found that starting it with iTunes caused problems. So I docked the TuneUp icon on the taskbar next to the iTunes icon. When I want to use it, 
It requires just a single additional click. And the crashing I mentioned really isn't terribly serious, just a bit annoying. If TuneUp stops working, you'll need to use the task manager to kill it, but anything it's already done will have been retained. TuneUp's clean process takes an acoustic fingerprint of each song and references it against a robust database of more than 90 million indexed tracks. Those are the words of the developer. And because TuneUp does it that way, it'll usually come back with the right information regardless of how bad the original metadata is. The returned information is sorted into two categories, ones that TuneUp believes absolutely to be correct and ones that TuneUp is reasonably certain are correct. You have the option to view each and every track in each set and to keep or reject any of the program's suggestions. And maybe there is a third category, ones that TuneUp just couldn't find. You won't see a lot of those. Besides providing all of the missing metadata, this process also retrieves the cover art in most cases. Sometimes it can't find anything or the image it finds is in a format that TuneUp can't deal with. But my collection went from about 2% with cover art to about 70%. That may seem a little low to you, but the vast majority of tunes in that 30% without cover art simply don't have any cover art because they're not from commercial CDs. A lot of them are old radio programs. So as it turns out, TuneUp actually retrieved artwork for more than 90% of the tracks that have cover art. In addition, there's an option to retrieve just the cover art. You can use this if the metadata is good and the only problem is missing covers. TuneUp has two more tabs that come into play when you're listening to music, Tuniverse and Concerts. Tuniverse can help lead you to music from artists similar to the artists you already like, the ones you're playing. Music that's in some way related to the track you're currently listening to. You'll also see additional music-related content from the Internet based on what's playing. In addition, you'll find links to music videos and information about the artists. Tell the Concerts tab where you live, and it will display all the concerts it knows about in your area. Find one you like, and TuneUp will allow you to buy tickets online. Clearly, there are lots of ways that TuneUp Media, the company that puts this program out, can monetize its service, so you might think the application is free. It's not. You can use it to clean 50 tunes or retrieve 100 cover images, but then you have to buy it. $20 for a one-year license, $30 for a lifetime license. And pay attention here, that's not your lifetime. It's the lifetime of the computer. If you're looking to just clean up an existing mess, the one-year license might be enough. You can continue to use TuneUp for Tuniverse and concerts without a license. Although the operation of TuneUp has been hampered by various problems, most probably stem from my use of Windows 7. And I found TuneUp support to be reasonably quick to respond and accurate in providing suggestions. So the bottom line on TuneUp, three cats... It does what it promises to do and cleans up iTunes. If you never use the iTunes cover flow option because all the covers are gray, this is just what you're looking for. If you have lots of selections that are misnamed or missing metadata, this is just what you're looking for. And even if you think it should be free, give the free trial a try. You'll probably decide the time you'll save and the drudgery you'll avoid will be well worth the cost of cleaning up your iTunes collection with TuneUp. 
If you'd like more information, you can check the TuneUp website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Sit down in front of your computer in the morning, open your email program, retrieve the mail, and there it is, sitting in your email inbox, a message from somebody you know. The message has no subject, there's no signature. You notice dozens of other email addresses in the to line. Some of these addresses are familiar to you, others aren't. The message consists of a single line of text, a URL to a website you've never heard of. Here's the question. Would you click it? I wouldn't, and let me explain why. First, this is a very common trick used by people who want to put malicious software on your computer, applications that can turn your computer into a spam bot or collect your keystrokes, giving the bad guys your bank name, password, and stuff like that. This doesn't mean you should never click another link. But it does mean that you need to treat each link you see with a certain amount of skepticism. A link that arrives without any explanation of what it is or why I would be interested in it is not a link I will ever click, even if it claims to come from someone I know. I also look for consistency. If the message without a signature line has come from someone I know, and that person either has a standard signature or always includes some sort of sign-off, A message without a signature won't pass my first security test. A link to an obscure website or a free hosting service also raises concerns. Any link that includes nonsense letters, that's going to be a non-starter. I have nothing against link shorteners such as TinyURL or Bitly, for example, but a message that includes one either needs a full explanation from the sender or it needs the full URL to be nearby so I can inspect it. A message without a subject is automatically suspicious, and if the message does have a subject line, it needs to sound like something the sender would have written. A message from a writer or editor, for example, shouldn't contain incorrect grammar or spelling errors. And the message, if there is one, has to sound like something the sender would have written. If you've been reading or listening to TechBiter Worldwide for even just a few months, you know how I write and how I talk. So if someday you receive a message that purports to come from me... And it says something like this. Hey, dudes, check out the chicks at this great porn site. That ain't me. Don't be fooled. Take no substitutes. I received a message this week from Ruben Musa, Inspector General of Police in Benin, a country in West Africa. Among Benin's neighbor countries is Nigeria. And apparently some Nigerian crooks have decided to move their business to Benin. The inspector general told me that my email address was found in the records of some scam gangsters and that this country wanted to make good on my misfortune by issuing me a special ATM card that would be delivered by DHL. Yeah, the alarm bells were already deafening, but I thought I'd simply suspend disbelief briefly as if I had gone to a movie or stage play. That turned out to be really difficult. First, Inspector General Musa seemed to think that by writing in 24-point bold text, he would make his message more convincing. That wasn't exactly the effect he achieved. The punctuation and spelling, of course, made the message laughable. I was addressed not by name, but as Dear Valued One. The message was sent to undisclosed recipients... And I was told that the Ministry of Finance, Republic of Benin, held a cogent meeting whatever a cogent meeting is, 
It held that meeting, he said, in January and set aside the sum of $1.5 million to compensate all the concerned victims. $1.5 million for all the victims? What a paltry sum. Oh, and he misspelled concerned. And then he said a huge amount of money must be delivered to me only by my consent. Yeah, mutts. Not must, mutts. However, at the same hand, he went on, I am advised to contact the email address shown in the message. It was a Gmail account. I'm absolutely certain that nobody who reads or listens to TechBiter Worldwide would fall for such an obvious con. And I have to wonder, who would? Somebody must. Otherwise, these crooks would find some other way to make money. By the way, I've mentioned a time or two that the average crook is somewhat unlikely to be the holder of a Phi Beta Kappa key or a member of Mensa or the class valedictorian. On Friday of this week, I received a spam from a spammer who wants me to buy things on my credit card, ship them to him, and wait for reimbursement. When the reimbursement arrives, it will undoubtedly be in the form of a cashier's check, and the check will be for more than the amount owed. I'll be asked to return the extra. A few days later, the check will prove to be a phony, and I'll be out not only the cost of the goods I bought for the crook, but also the cash I sent to the crook. This is one of the older kinds, and it's surprising that people still fall for it. I received five copies of the message within minutes of each other. All had somebody else's name as the sender, but each had my address as both the sender and the recipient. This is quite easy to do, but it's a dead giveaway. The spam was sent to me at my office address. At home, I automatically reject all messages that claim to come from me. So let's parse this message just for fun. It starts this way. We're Canadian Interactive Media Agency. Our firm help companies create effective result-driven Internet marketing strategies. If you are a media agency, I would expect you to be able to write in decent English to know that you need either a definite or indefinite article before Canadian. To understand that sentences should end with some form of punctuation and not just run all together that result-driven should be hyphenated, and that Internet is a proper noun that should be capitalized. The message went on. We are dealing with the most European companies and assist them to develop an advocacy strategy for their brands in North America, United States, and Canada. Well, I'm certainly glad to see that they are dealing with the most European companies. I certainly wouldn't want to work with someone who is dealing with just partially European companies. And telling me that North America includes both the United States and Canada, yeah, that's a nice touch. We are looking, the message went on, for lowercase Americans, age 25 plus, for sales, and sales is capitalized, assistant position, buyer's credit card processing, online sales, in order to strengthen the position of these European companies in the American market. So I had to wonder why Americans and European were lowercase while sales and American were capitalized. Why did they misspell position? And can anybody tell me exactly what this sentence is attempting to communicate based solely on the words in it? Sales assistant position is contract based with monthly salary, $1,000 sign, and 10% sales commission. Well, there's another missing article. It should be a monthly salary. And neither Americans nor Canadians typically place the dollar sign to the right of the amount. We put it on the left. Full training provided. No experience and investment required. So here's another clear indication that this wasn't written by a native English speaker. It should be no experience or 
investment required. Sales assistant can spend one hour per day for a job working in home based or current job office. My guess is that this was written by someone whose first language is one of the Slavic tongues. It just has that kind of syntax. Still, the most surprising aspect of this whole mess is the fact that the spammer sent five copies of the same message to one address. This would indicate to me that the spammer doesn't know how to use the spam application, or that the spammer is an utter fool. Or both. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.